Well, thank you. It's good to be back here again. I remember when I was young, there was always a sense of anticipation and adventure when we went on a train journey. I managed to recapture that uh, again this evening. And I I rather fear I'll recapture it a bit more before I see my bed tonight. (laughs) However, the theme this evening, Man, the Covenant King. We're looking at our self-understanding. What we think people are, what we think we ourselves are. And to be biblically faithful... Our self-understanding, our conception of what humanity really is, must begin where scripture itself begins. Mankind was created in a state of integrity, endowed with an originally upright existence. That, of course, isn't the end of the story. We still have to reckon with the fact of our fall into sin, with the impact of God's redeeming grace. But vital though these aspects of our human condition are, they don't diminish the abiding reality of our creatureliness. It's from there that we have to begin if we're to arrive at an accurate understanding of ourselves. Now that's true in terms of spiritual experience. If we're going to understand what's involved in fallenness, And what's involved in renewal, we can only appreciate these against the background of what we originally were. But it's wrong to think of Genesis 1 and its implications for humanity as as a story that's really just a tale from the past. A memory of what once was, but now sadly has been lost. It's misleading to relegate Genesis 1 to the distant past. It's equally misleading to think of its message as having relevance only for the the distant future. There is a sense in which protology, the study of the first things, what we're told about in Genesis 1, there's a sense in which that sets the agenda uh, for what's going to happen later, for the divine recovery program that is salvation. So there is a sense in which, looking back, we can get a framework in which to try and understand what still awaits the human race. But it's wrong to reckon the value of studying the early chapters of Genesis, either in terms simply of what was once true in the past, or in terms of what will eventually be true in the restitution of all things in the future. We have to realize that what we are right now and what we should be doing right now are determined by what was set up back then. Our primordial creatureliness still defines what we are. The constitution of mankind is written in those early chapters of Genesis. Our humanity has been distorted, been misdirected by sin. But it hasn't been destroyed. We're still creatures created to serve our maker. 
Now the record of Genesis 1 sets before us very clearly the fact that there was an order in the divine creative process and as a consequence that that order has imposed a structure on creation. The older theologians sometimes distinguished between what they called creatio prima, first creation. They used that term to refer to God's initial act of bringing matter into existence where there had been nothing before. And they viewed that as then being followed by God's ordering process that they called creatio secunda, the second creation, by which the material environment and the animal world were brought into existence. And it's at that stage of creation that there was imposed on the universe the natural laws which directly, without mediation, structure those spheres of creation in terms of the divine requirements, in terms of God's law. Atoms and snowflakes, galaxies and quasars are all bound to observe directly the divine law. There's no possibility of deviation. It's also true of the animal world. They don't possess decision-making freedom. They don't bear responsibility for other creatures. They behave involuntarily, instinctively, intuitively. Whether tadpoles or elephants, their behavior too derives from the nature given to them by their creator. <coughs> and anticipating somewhat what I'm going to say, we might just note at that point that mankind cannot alter the rules that govern the behavior of the natural world. Our mandate to work within it, to organize it, to bring it into service, it's an ordered and intelligible world and we can grasp some of the structures that are imposed on it. It's because of these divinely imposed regularities that scientific endeavor is possible. It isn't totally frustrating to try to work out what is going on in the world around us. And it's because of the constancy of the structure of the universe that there can be cumulative and progressive exploration of these realms over the generations. But we've still to recognize the fixity of the arrangements that God's made. What we call natural law is divinely ordained and settled. We can explore it, we can wonder at it, but we cannot alter it. And even in rebellion and alienation, we can explore it accurately and effectively. But there's a third level to creation. What someone's called creatio tertia in which God made mankind in his own image, having a special role to perform and endowed with the faculties to carry out that role. We're not to think of mankind as a unique creature to which the image of God's been added to supplement or complement what was already there. To be human is to be the image of God. 
It's less than adequate to say that we have the divine image. It's less than adequate to say that humankind bear the divine image. We are the divine image. Not an optional extra. The image defines what humanity is. And the implications of that are that we're not to confine the image to a particular aspect of human psychology, to particular areas of life. It covers all that we are and have. So that we can say that in the third stage of creation, God created mankind with real powers of decision-making. God, God determined to impose his will on creation, not directly, as he does with natural law affecting the material or the animal world, but God decided to impose his will on creation indirectly through the involvement of human responsibility. As free and responsible beings, we are to serve God by carrying forward the work of the world of which he's made and of which we're part. The original creation was good, but it wasn't yet perfect. When mankind were created, God pronounced it very good. Creation stood poised on the threshold of historical development. God's creating work was finished. Nothing good was lacking. And he now created the species that has the potential to bring to completion what God himself had begun in his creative work. Francis Schaeffer, in his book uh, Death in the City, captured the biblical view of man in its paradoxical nature when he wrote, Man is wonderful. He can really influence significant history. Since God made man in his own image, man is not caught in the wheels of determinism. Rather, man is so great that he can influence history for himself and for others, for this life and the life to come. One of the great weaknesses in evangelical preaching in the last few years is that we have lost sight of the biblical fact that man is wonderful. For even though he is now a sinner, he can do those things that are tremendous. Man is lost, but man is great. Now against that background, we must notice the particular structure in, what, in which God places man in his image. So that the divine goal, the divine purpose in creation can be brought forward to realization. Man is the covenant king of creation. What does that mean? Well, covenant speaks of relationship. A fixed relationship between God and mankind. At the heart of covenant is the divine promise, I am your God. And there is the mirror image to that, you will be my people. It is a relationship. The divine human nexus is at the focus of our creaturely existence. 
To know ourselves, we must know God. And as we know God, we come to know ourselves. It also means that there are realities in life on which we can rely absolutely. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Galatians 6 and 7. There are realities in life on which we can count. And there are realities in life for which we can be called to account. The biblical worldview isn't governed by capricious voluntarism. But by the sovereign determination of God. And the covenant structure of creation has lost none of its reality. It's still fully in force. It's what we have to reckon with here and now if we're trying to define what human living ought to be. I think I've said this here before. But covenant's an Old Testament metaphor drawn from the the realm of politics, of international affairs. It relates to those treaties which the emperors of the ancient world used to structure the affairs of the subordinate kings whose territory they'd conquered. Covenant is an abiding charter. Covenant is a framework which sets the parameters of the behavior expected by the vessel, by the subordinate king. And so too God's covenant arrangements set the parameters of the way in which God wishes us to live before him. Just as the overlords of the ancient world set out very clearly the terms and conditions which they required their subordinates to observe, so too God the creator sets out the responsibilities inherent in our relationship as creatures before him and also the privileges that he accords us in terms of our relationship with him. We tend to approach the matter from our own point of view. We tend to approach the matter thinking of man. But in covenant, the focus is not primarily on the subordinate king. First and foremost is the reality of the supremacy of the overlord, the jurisdiction and authority of God as the king the supreme head of creation. Now Genesis 1 is pervaded by the concept of the kingship of the creator. God's creative words are presented in form and function as royal decrees. God is seen to name day, night, sky, land, sea. That is a royal expression of lordship an exercise of sovereign authority over these basic structures of time and space. The report of God's assignment of the spheres of rule to the sun and moon in verses 16 to 18 of Genesis 1 portray him also as this sovereign overlord. And the account of the creation of man also is presented in terms of divine action divine authority 
there is, on many people's reading of the chapter, the royal council in which the, the intended action is announced. But God doesn't come with a, a hesitant proposal. If it is his heavenly retinue that he's addressing, he's not bringing before them a, a heavenly green paper that, issue, that he issues to them for consultative purposes. Can you better my proposals? He rather comes and promulgates the divine decree already settled within the inner council of the deity. Humankind, earthlings though they are, are to be created in the divine image and invested with the office of ruling. In God's creating mankind in his image and likeness, quite possibly there's a reflection of the way in which powerful kings of the ancient Near East asserted their sovereignty over a territory that they had conquered. Uh, there's considerable evidence that they did so by erecting a statue of themselves to give substance to their claim over distant territories. It was the ancient equivalent of hoisting the flag. If you came to a new territory, you hoisted the flag of the nation in whose name you were claiming a sovereignty over this territory. In the ancient world, they put up a statue of themselves. And so man is God's representative, summoned to maintain and enforce God's claim to dominion over the earth. And we see God making specific arrangements for humanity in verses 29 and 30. It very much recalls the royal assignment of food at the king's table for those who were his servants. If you just look at one of those features, it doesn't perhaps amount to too much. But put them all together, and the total effect is in Genesis 1 to see there God as the sovereign Supreme Head of creation over all realms, visible and invisible, structuring the created realm the way he wanted. I think it's fair to say that in Greek thought, the prevailing metaphor for the universe tended to be that of an organism. And in terms of the thought of Descartes or Newton, the universe was thought of as a machine. Well, within the conceptual framework of the Old Testament, the most common metaphor for creation is the kingdom of God. One's only to think of, say, the Psalms that you find in the 90s. The Lord doth reign. Or to think of Isaiah's stricken reaction when he realized that he himself with his own eyes had seen the Lord, the King. The King whose glory filled the earth. The visible creation is viewed as a single, ordered, integrated realm under the control of God himself. And out of all that he has created, God makes man 
and appoints him to the office of subordinate king. As the psalmist reflected on in Psalm 8, O what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Of course, there is a an evocation there of the final crowning of the supreme man, Christ himself. But it's also saying that mankind in general are of royal blood, given authority over creation, going into creation to represent the supreme king there and to bring his purposes to fulfillment. It's a derived kingship, not a despotism, It is a derived kingship. We are answerable. There is accountability, not uncontrolled freedom. And even though now the king lives in rebellion, our basic responsibilities remain whether we wish to acknowledge them or not. And what is more, and this is an important point to grasp, Those divinely imposed obligations are not a wish list to be taken into consideration as mankind sees best. They are obligations under covenant sanction. There is blessing as the stated consequence of covenant fidelity and there is covenant curse as the stated penalty for infidelity. And that means that any society that ignores God's basic structure for human life on earth does so at its own peril. On the one hand, then, it's possible to characterize the situation facing humanity as one where divinely imposed obligations will incur divinely imposed covenant penalties. But on the other hand, we can approach the same reality from a different angle. Because the covenant structure is not an unnatural imposition. It's not an additional burden imposed on mankind. The maker of all things acts in a way that is consonant with the nature of what he's created. This structure, this set of responsibilities arises from creation, fits in with what God has made us. And that means that if we ignore the basic divine structures implanted in creation, we're not only doing violence to our relationship with God, We're doing violence to our own beings and to our relationships with one another. God did not present, did not impose an arbitrary set of terms and conditions on man when he said, this is the way you're to live. It is the case that living the way God wants ensures harmony between heaven and earth. But it's also the case that if we despise God's structure, we not only cut ourselves off from him, we also impose a gross abuse and disruption of what we are 
in ourselves individually and what we are collectively in society. The covenant requirement requires us to look to what God wants and to see that as structuring the totality of our existence. So then, mankind go out into creation to represent their king. But how are they to do so? And I want to suggest this evening that we can distinguish four levels in which the the rule of the God-imaging, covenantally responsible king it can set about his task. I'm taking them up in, a, in the order I am, not for theological reasons, but because I want to leave the one I'm going to say most about till the end. Um, but as I was looking at the order, I, I did think there was in fact a certain similarity to one aspect of ancient covenants. In the ancient treaties, the treaties of the ancient world, uh, the, the overlord first of all had general requirements and then particular requirements. And the way the order has just fallen out this evening, I'm going to look first of all at two more general sets of requirements and then at two more particular ones. We're asking the question, how should God's appointed ruler over creation set about his task? And the first characteristic of the, the rule of the vassal king arises from the nature with which we've been endowed. See, I wasn't here last week, and neither were you from what no, you were no. saying either. Um, sorry if there's an overlap. But traditionally, being in the image of God was viewed as an ontological endowment. I really wanted to say that just to see how many, <laughs> how many of you really nod saying, yeah, I know. An ontological endowment, how do we mean? The image of God was seen to be something about the being and the nature of man, what people actually are. Nowadays, the emphasis is very much more on the image being functional, what we are to do rather than what we are. I tend to view this as an overstretched, if not false, dichotomy. Mankind were divinely created with just that potential for rationality, for imagination, for feeling, for social interaction and cohesion, just that potential for fellowship with God himself that made them uniquely and appropriately suited to the task assigned them. The what we are and the task given to us are not two separate things that have been brought into uh, relationship arbitrarily. God made us what we are because he knew what he wanted us to be. He made us what we are so that we could do exactly what he wanted to do, what, what he wanted done in the way in which he wanted it done. And it's possible, I rather think it's more than possible, to translate Genesis 1 
let us make man in our image after our likeness so that they may have dominion. Not just, first of all, let us make them and then let them have dominion. This is a sequence. This, there is a purpose. The ima- made in the image so that they may accomplish the task that is assigned them. The two go together. The one flowing on from the other. And therefore it's possible to explore the implications of being made in the image, what we are in ourselves, as giving a clue to the way in which we should go about the task that's before us. Professor John Murray of Westminster set this out in his Principles of Conduct in the following way. The writing of the law upon the heart in the renewing operations of grace is parallel and similar to that which must have been true in Adam's state of integrity. Adam was created in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness and holiness. The analogy of scripture teaching would indicate that this implied the inscription of the law of God upon his heart. If man has fallen, has the work of the law written upon his heart so that he by nature does the things of the law, how much more must this have been true in original integrity? And if the renewal of man after the image of God can be described in terms of writing the law upon the heart, surely creation in the divine image at the beginning must have carried with it the inscription of the law upon the hearts of our first parents. The image of God in which man is recreated cannot be principally different from that in which he was at first created. Now, Murray's not arguing there from Genesis 1. He's arguing from the New Testament back into Genesis 1, looking at the places in the New Testament where the language of the image is used and seeing if that does not, and arguing, I think, quite successfully that it does, throw light on what must have been there originally. So what's he saying? Well, I think we have to conclude that being in the image says something not only about how mankind are morally endowed, it also indicates how they should therefore exercise the rule with which they're invested. It's to be done in righteousness and holiness. It also indicates that there's a knowledge. Perhaps we could call it God-consciousness, self-consciousness in its true sense, which would mold their responses dictate their conduct. Adam, as created, knew that he was not the final arbiter of how he should behave. Our first parents knew whose behavior was to be the model for their conduct. As a king should be a channel for blessing for his realm, Mankind were intended to be a conduit for the welfare of the territory placed in their charge. The image bearers of the heavenly king were intended to mold their conduct 
on the conduct of him who by the word of his power and the might of his spirit brought into existence and maintained the realm he created. The picture behind the rule of the covenant king is the picture of the shepherd rather than the tyrant. And we see something of this aspect of the way in which we're to behave brought before us in Genesis 2. Remember how there the animals are brought before Adam and he names them. Now again, that naming is an act of authority, especially of kingly authority. We've seen it already in the divine naming of the, the day and the night. You see it also later on in the Old Testament. Was it not Pharaoh Necho who exercised his lordship over Eliakim in Second Kings 23 and changed his name to Jehoiakim? Later on, Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing, showed who was really in control when he renamed Mataniah as Zedekiah. Adam naming the animals is the covenant king exercising his authority over the realm that's been put under his control. But it's not just authority, it's also insight. It's knowledge. Because the name reflects the nature and the character of the one named. It indicates the study and reflection that was put into this exercise by the divine image bearer. This is Adam the scientist. We often think of Adam the gardener, but this is Adam the scientist engaging in taxonomy, classification. Henri Blochet in his book, In the Beginning, sums it up this way. By naming, the man demonstrates his power of distinguishing things immediately and makes thought about the real world possible by the mental combination of symbols instead of the impossible manipulation of objects. We may therefore see in Genesis 2 verse 19 following the first exercise of human intelligence, justification for which may be found in the ancient traditions about the incomparable wisdom of the first man. Adam, created in the image, goes about the exercise of his kingly rule with the righteousness, the holiness, the knowledge and the insight that is given to him by God in creation. So there is first of all man's kingly rule because of what is implicit in the image. But we can also see that there are aspects of God's, of man's kingly rule that come out of the situation that he's placed in. Not his own nature, but the environment he's placed in. And one that I think is of significance is that mankind as a whole are invested with covenant kingship. Now, in saying that, I'm not just reflecting on what might be called the, the politically correct point that the covenant mandates are all plural and they're all addressed to men and women, uh, to the first couple and not just to Adam. Uh, that's true, but the, 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 more, the more general point I want to emphasize, that covenant obligations devolve on one's heirs and successors. 
Now, nowadays, there's a great deal of talk about human rights. And they're often defined in humanistic terms. But the status and the rights of all human beings are defined by their original, by our original covenant status as kings. Oh, we've got to add the fact of our fallenness and the fact of our rebellion if we're going to assess our situation completely. But we've got to reckon with what we should be before we modify it, adjust it to reflect what we actually are. Each of Adam's race is a participant in this act of covenant rule. Each is, in effect, a vassal king. And we've no right to interfere with the exercise of their, the, in, the due individual sovereignty of another king. Each of us is answerable to the one who gave us the rights that we have. And just as one sovereign state shouldn't interfere in the internal affairs of another, so the sovereign rights of God's vassal kings have to be respected by others who are their equals and not their superiors. A scriptural approach to human rights has got to begin back with creation with the fact that we are each covenant kings. For instance, inherent in the status of covenant king is the right to life. Uh, the sanctity of human life is implicit in the arrangements of Genesis 1, but it's certainly spelled out much more clearly in Genesis 9, in the Noachic covenant. But that covenant can be viewed as a covenant of recreation. It is reconstituting the world after the judgment of the flood. And in many respects, it's the same body of teaching that's to be found on both occasions. So in principle, right from the very start, there is the sanctity of human life. And can I just notice one other feature of the narrative that comes in under this heading? In the account of the created realm, time and again we've got the phrase, after their kind, each according to its kind. When God created the vegetable world, when God created animal life, there were boundaries of differentiation that he sovereignly imposed. The phrase is absent in the creation of man. Now at one level that points to the higher dignity that's accorded to mankind because in the case of mankind the phrase is not after their kind but in our image after our likeness. But it also points to the absence of divinely instituted separation among mankind. The fact that each according to its kind is not found in the creation of mankind constitutes a creational barrier against racial, ethnic, social, economic, intellectual differentiation and discrimination. They are not part of the creation structure of mankind. At best they're secondary, at worst they're wrong, but they don't belong to the essence of mankind. 
There is only one level of differentiation that is creationally mandated. The duality of male and female that has to be perpetually respected. And that's another perspective that comes from the creation structure that's to be maintained in our thinking about human rights. Moving on to more particular levels, there is thirdly that specific aspect in the divine structuring of the covenant relationship. Indeed, in terms of the traditional theology of the covenant of works, it is the stipulation of the covenant. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17 I don't want to minimize the significance of that probationary stipulation. In it, There was a concentrated test that would determine the course of subsequent history. But if I've understood the sequence of these lectures, that's somebody else's bit, and I'm not going to spoil it for them. What, however, I want to emphasize is that it's too narrow a viewpoint to take that particular test, do not eat, as the only requirement that was placed on our first parents when they were created. Modern thinking about the covenants very much departed from a covenant of works focused on the command not to eat. That in its own is an inadequate characterization of the situation that God placed mankind in. Now there is a much uh, readier acceptance of a term like covenant of life, or even more commonly, covenant of creation, embracing every aspect of the conduct and situation of mankind as created in the image, setting out all the requirements placed upon the vassal king in the totality of our created environment. The overlord required of the vassal king not just obedience in that one matter, It went beyond the specific test. It included all that he said and did because the overlord's realm knows no earthly boundary. And that's a vital perspective. If we narrow our focus on the obedience required of our first parents simply to the eating of the tree, then we're liable to have a restricted view of the redemption that God provides, focusing on inner personal blessing. Oh, it's there, it's real, but it's not the whole story. God reinstates his vassals into the whole of the domain that he's assigned to us. He requires not just a spiritual, church-oriented obedience, but a total commitment that extends to every aspect of living. So there is the specific requirement, and it had momentous significance, but it's a focal point that has to be seen against the background of all the requirements. And so fourthly, and finally, it's to those other creational stipulations that we turn. And it's remarkable 
God had endowed mankind in his image, had given knowledge, and yet there was still scope for direct communication regarding duties and privileges. God and mankind are partners in covenant fellowship. But it's a fellowship that even in innocence, before the fall, is maintained by the divine word. The essential and qualitative differences between creator and creature are bridged by God's act of communication. Before the fall, the overlord gives us specific positive directions regarding the activity in which mankind are to engage in this world. Well, what are these directions? Well, in his Principles of Conduct, to which I have already referred, Professor Murray listed seven. The procreation of offspring, the replenishing of the earth, subduing of the same, dominion over the creatures, labor, the weekly Sabbath, and marriage. I propose taking them up under four headings. And the first is what we find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. It's perhaps helpful to see those verses, and particularly verse 28, as dealing with two areas of human behavior. And the first relates to mankind itself. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. It was not the divine intention that Adam and Eve alone should accomplish all that needed to be done to bring creation to its consummation. There's presented here a picture of population growth. Their mandate given to the covenant king was no local mandate confined to the Garden of Eden. Although graciously God placed them in a confined area and said start from here. The fulfillment that is in view here envisages spreading throughout the countries, the lands of the earth. And how that was to be done is clarified a little later. But perhaps we should notice the preamble. God blessed them and said to them. Now the first time God is said to bless is in chapter 1 verse 22. In reference to the great creatures of the sea. Every living and moving thing with which the water teems. And every winged bird according to its kind. God blessed them and said be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Divine blessing is there related to empowering those species to fulfill their potential 
for natural increase. Is that all that's then being said in verse 28 when God blesses Adam and Eve? Is it just that God is similarly empowering mankind to increase in number? I think it goes beyond that. Because it is not simply God's blessed them and said, as it was back in verse 22. It's God blessed them and said to them. It is an informed blessing. One that they were aware of. One whose divine origin they were called on to recognize and respect. It required the intelligent appreciation of the newly installed covenant king for this channel of blessing to reach its fullness. Indeed, included in the scope of the blessing are the other areas of activity mentioned later in the verse. So that here in this blessing, we have God appreciating, God uh, speaking to man and appreciating the creature with whom, whom he is endowed with intelligence and entering into a living communicative relationship with mankind. He said to them and gave this mandate to increase in number. The second area of behavior that's regulated in the so-called cultural mandate is the relationship of mankind to the rest of creation, animate and inanimate. I think it's mainly the inanimate creation that's on focus in the phrase subdue it, that is, subdue the earth. <coughs> that expression's often given rise to the accusation that it's harsh, exploitative. And certainly elsewhere, the Hebrew verb can mean to enslave or to conquer. But here in the pre-fall world, Man's not confronting his physical environment as an adversary. The idea is to bring under one's control for one's advantage. The idea is harness its potential, use its resources for your benefit. In the ancient Israelite context, that would have meant cultivating the fields, mining the mineral resources, uh, using its trees for construction, developing its potential. But it's the same mandate still in a highly scientific, industrialized, technological world. It is in obedience to that mandate to bring under control for our advantage the realm in which we're placed, that our blessing, our delight, our deep sense of satisfaction and service arise. There's also the mandate with respect to the animal world. Rule over the fish, the birds, and so on. The AV translated it, have dominion over. That's also given rise to misconceptions. The word can be used of a king's rule over a conquered region. But it's the same word that's found in Psalm 72 verse 8 and Psalm 110 verse 2 of the messianic king. And this is a rule that has to be exercised responsible to God, answerable to God, and also imaged after God's rule. This is the rule of the shepherd, not the rule of the despot. 
This is the rule of the individual who is answerable. So exercising dominion, subduing the world, are not excuses for plundering the resources of our environment. It's rather a call to be faithful stewards of the realm placed under our control, the realm given to us for our advancement. The second mandate relates to the Sabbath in Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2. Sorry, verses 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because in it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It's often be discussion. Is this really a mandate? There's no command. It's just a description. We are here have recorded God blessed the seventh day. We're back to this word blessed again. We've already seen two instances of divine blessing in which animate beings were empowered to fulfill their potential. And that's the normal way of uh, scripture use of the concept of blessing. It relates to live beings coming to their potential. How can divine blessing be imposed on an inanimate object on a day? And the answer would seem to be it's only as the day is connected with a living being. Not with God himself, but with mankind. That's the way Jesus interpreted this passage. The Sabbath was made, the Sabbath came into existence for man, for the sake of man. From the very beginning, the vassal king had the privilege and obligation of setting aside one day in seven for resting from the work that had been assigned him by his overlord. Just as God chose to rest from his labor on the seventh day and refreshed himself, so mankind must choose to cease from theirs. And what's more, we read that God declared or made the day holy. It's God who is ultimately holy. Holiness is the essence of his character. Whatever is chosen by God and set apart for his service is also called holy. So that here it's being emphasized that this day is set apart by God in a very sense to be specially his. There's been given the very clearest of hints how mankind, the divine image bearer, should regard this day, should conduct themselves on this day. This is the tribute that is to be paid by the creature to the creator. One and a half months of every calendar year are to be times specially set aside for God. It sounds a bit different when you add it up that way, but that's what it comes out as. About one and a half months out of every twelve. And the obligation doesn't just rest on those who are in living fellowship with God. It's on all mankind to observe this creational ordinance. For the Christian, of course, there's an added incentive because now the one day in seven falls on the, not on the last day of the week looking forward uh, to what was going to come, but on the first day of the week marking uh, what God has already done 
in initiating the new creation. But that's to go into another realm. The point is that back there in Genesis 2, this principle is set out as structuring the divine overlord, structuring the time of mankind in a way that would enable them to fulfill all that he required. I also mention briefly the ordinance of labor that's expressed in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It's obviously very closely linked with the previous mandate regarding the Sabbath. Here is the, the aspect of work. It links in with the requirement to subdue the earth as well. This is how man is going to uh, act uh, to uh, use the resources. It's something to be undertaken in a regular, consistent fashion. But the point that's especially to be emphasized is that work, employment, is not part of the fall. It's true that now the fruit of the ground can only be enjoyed by the sweat of the brow. Work is no longer inherently the pleasant task it would once have been. But there is something in the nature of people, the way we've been made, that requires for us work, not in the sense of paid employment, but in the sense of God-oriented labor to fulfill the tasks that we've been made to fulfill. And there is still enjoyment and satisfaction in carrying out this work when it's undertaken in its full creational sense. Even in Eden, before the fall, mankind were expected to work. Paradise wasn't a life of leisured unemployment. How many have tried to find satisfaction for themselves by creating a paradise of leisure to find that it only frustrates them and turns to dust and ashes. Why? Because it's not being true to the sort of beings that we have been created by God to be. And then we have, fourthly, and this is the fourth point in the fourth heading, I would say lastly as well, the ordinance of marriage begins with a divine observation. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the consequent creation of Eve. But God doesn't merely create the woman. He brings her to the man, inviting them both to enter into a divinely instituted relationship to form a common life together. And there's then given the inspired explanation of how the marriage bond is to function. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That's a creation ordinance that's got far-reaching implications, especially in our troubled and benighted society. What's presented here is a picture of interpersonal fusion and oneness. It doesn't simply refer to various moments of marital consummation, but to an ongoing bond 
which is part of the divine structure needed for human society to fulfill the other mandates, to promote social cohesion and solidarity. You can't take one of the creation ordinances and satisfy it without seeing how it, all the others have implications for it. Here is how the Creator wished his vassals to carry out his commands. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, said Jesus. And for this reason, quoting again, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The creation ordinance sets the internal structure of the marriage bond, where the woman is said to be the helper to the man, the one corresponding to him. The whole of God's creation helps mankind in one way or another fulfill the mandates imposed on the covenant king. But only the woman does so as the one corresponding to the man and able to be his companion. Was it Prince Philip who often wondered why it was that when a man married a queen he didn't become king? But when a woman married a king, she always became queen. Well, that's what's here. This is the two of them, and there's no doubt about their status, their joint royalty. I still think the best commentary on the creation of Eve is to be found in the well-known remarks of Matthew Henry. The woman was made out of a rib, made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Sometimes these older folk really knew what they were talking about. But then there's the dark side. The ordinance also makes clear the perversion that's involved in various sexual aberrations. Marriage between man and woman is part of the divine constitution for the created order and it can't be supplanted or ignored without grievous consequences. Polygamy is ruled out by this ordinance. It is a single woman who was formed from the original man. No place for a third party. Divorce an annulling of the relationship that God has instituted is also inherently a contradiction of this creation ordinance. It's obvious also that same-sex relationships are forbidden. And what's more, this is not just counsel for the church, though amongst those who are saved there should be a ready willingness to comply with the divine mandate. This is a creation ordinance. It applies to all mankind. And if it's flouted, the consequences are dire, not just for the individuals, but for the society of which they're part. Our generation has found out something of the unhappiness and the misery that arises when God's creation ordinances are set aside. And I fear that as yet we've only seen the trickle of the consequences of setting them aside. So what we have are God and man, two partners in a covenant fellowship. They're both kings, but mankind's royalty is subordinate. It is derived. It is held by grant from the sovereign creator and ruler of all. 
And we have to exercise our authority in terms of the mandate that's been given to us. If we fail to do so, we're accountable to God. Our rebellion against him doesn't relieve us of the responsibilities that have been put on us. And what's more, even in our rebellion, we transgress the parameters of creation at our own peril. For they're not arbitrary. They reflect what we've been made to be. And they present us with a a set of standards that reflect the only way in which we can achieve our full potential. As those who are made in the image of God, we are to image God. And we can best learn what that imaging involves, not merely by looking at the early chapters of Scripture, but especially by looking at him who is the the word-made flesh, who images fully and perfectly the will of his Father, the nature of his Father, and who comes in the power of his Spirit to transform us so that we may be like him. I leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Mackay. It's well known that um, I don't like question time in any shape or form. Um, however, I bow to the, the uh, majority who want an opportunity, I, I know, to, to ask questions. I, one of the reasons I don't is I always find myself in the presence of uh, an authority stumbling about what to say and what to ask. However, can we just have a, a half a minute break where, as always, we lock the doors and don't allow you to leave the room, but at least just perhaps think of one or two things that have been prompted by what Professor Mackay said that you may wish to ask him about to illuminate, enlarge. And maybe there is something there you'd hoped he said and he hasn't. But do try and stick to the point as well. Let's just take a break for half a minute. I guess from the conversation there are lots of questions. Um, I'm going to invite people to to ask anything they might want or to make a comment or please please do so. You've got uh, them very quiet all of a sudden. Or I shall call you by name. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, with a lot of uh, modern scientific advancements, I think in particular genetic engineering and that sort of thing, people say we shouldn't do that because it's playing God. Um, but if man is covenant king under God, is there anything in the realm of creation that is, by its very nature, outside of our mandate? It's obviously the case that we have to comp- continue reassessing uh, what mankind can technologically do. The problem the church has had over the centuries has been to know what's fixed and what's not fixed. The Galileo phenomenon, you know. Uh, it took the church quite a long time to adjust to the fact that uh, the sun was still and it was the earth that was moving around. In the same way, 
the scientific advance is continually showing us many things that man has now got the power to do. But it's one thing having the power, it's another thing for it to be right to do it. You can have the power to construct an atomic bomb, but that doesn't mean that you have the right to set it off. In the same way, in uh, genetic engineering, there seem to be many things that are possible that were not possible five, ten years ago, but that doesn't mean that it's inherently right. So that you've got to ask the question, is this a responsible use of technology? Is this a responsible use in the light of the basic purposes that God has for creation? Now, it's easy to see the question. It's not so easy every time to answer the question. And uh, it calls for a great deal of uh, prayerful thought uh, to work out what the parameters are. Uh, I, I suppose my basic uh, criterion would be don't do it till you're sure. Uh, I, I rather suspect that the modern idea is if we'll do, if we can do it, we shall. And I get very worried with that. Mm. I think it would be far better to hold back from the realm, from the, the, the cutting edge of technology until we're sure of, of the moral consequences. Um, I always find it interesting. If some chapters further on into Genesis chapter 4 particularly, that it was in the line of Cain that the great technological advances of the day were made, as distinct from the line of promise, the line of Seth. Uh, they didn't seem to be at the forefront of technology. Perhaps that's a hint that um, they had different priorities uh, and also that they uh, exercised greater caution. Uh, I'm a great believer in being cautious. <laughs> Any other points? How should we use the Sabbath? This is not perhaps a question you want me to ask or may, maybe not answer. It seems to me that in general uh, and in evangelicalism too there's a very weak view today of the Sabbath and all, all kinds of things are done. I mean have you anything to say to us on that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, <clears throat> first train's due and <laughs> It struck me when I was preparing what I was going to say to you this evening that the Sabbath was probably one of the more vexed areas, that I would probably get general nodding of heads when I talked about the sanctity of marriage and when I talked about uh, the intrinsic value of work uh, and when I talked about the cultural mandate. And I thought, no, the Sabbath will probably be one that people will feel more uncomfortable with. And that is a great pity because it is one of the greatest blessings. Uh, it's not just creation mandates... It didn't just give mankind duties. These duties also have in them a blessing, spiritual usefulness, a material usefulness as well. 
And we, we live in a very odd world. We've actually gone back to um, pre-Christian uh, BC. Uh, looking around the area I live in, Saturday is now the day off. It's the seventh day. We're back to seventh-day Adventism. You can get a workman to come any Sunday you want, but suggest Saturday. No, it's football. Um, now, I, I do think that the church has got to uh, have very clear stand here. I'm not wanting... In the past, there were lists of do's and don'ts. And that, I think, became very restrictive, oppressive, and unhelpful because they tended to be the do's and don'ts that suited the previous generation. And, you know, there were problems. But there is a great need for the emphasis on the fact that this is part of our constitution as human beings and part of divine blessing. And that's why I emphasized what I think are the two aspects that are clear in, in the Genesis narrative. The fact that it was a day that God blessed, and I can't define that blessing until I get mankind into the picture. And it was a day that was set apart as holy, sanctified, consecrated, set apart as holy, God-focused day, a God-devoted day. I think we have a measure of liberty as to how we work that out. Uh, I, I don't want to get into anything terribly specific, but I, I feel that the big problem is that we're losing sight of it uh, by way of overreaction to perhaps a particular form of Sabbatarianism that, that existed in the past. Um, it's a story, and I'm not sure whether I should tell it, because it's... <clears throat> however, I'll tell it. It's about myself, so that's not... It was one of the first times I came down to England, to a place, Long Horsley. And uh, I was staying with someone. And I remember I was quite un uncertain about what I was doing. I, 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 the, the only other times I'd been down in England preaching was in very safe territory. Uh, it, it wasn't in a, a non-free church environment. And I remember uh, saying, I'll have to, I was just trying to feel my way, find out what sort of place I was in, what sort of people there were here. Uh, and I, I, I do remember feeling a great sigh of relief when I was shown into somebody's living room and the, the, there was a, a, an LDUS pamphlet on the table. I thought, they have that down here too, so it can't be too bad a place. Um, I find myself that the attitude of Christian groups towards the Sabbath, towards the Lord's Day, is a pretty fair indicator of how serious they are about their religious commitment. I'm not saying that in terms of any specific set of criteria, but I am saying that it's something that, I, if you, as you go around and meet with various groups, it does seem to me uh, to, to be indicative of it. But there's a, it's, it's slipped down the agenda. It shouldn't have done. It's up there amongst the four or the seven or however many creation ordinances you want to count. And it is still a, a vital area for the spiritual health both of the individual and of the community. Thank you. Any other questions? Frank is shaking his head. I think that means no. Is that, is that right, Frank? 
Well, if not, um, I, I, I think, and I'm conscious of the time tonight as well, Professor Mackay has to get back to Edinburgh and some people have to wade through waters to Long Horsley and, and other places as well. Uh, I'm sure you'd want me, as always, to express our gratitude to Professor Mackay for uh, a very stimulating uh, talk. He always gives us a great deal to think about and to ponder upon, and once again you've done that. Uh, and uh, we are very grateful to you. Um, I don't know what a series of autumn lectures would be without you being here. Uh, um, well, you could I always think find out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'll put that to the test for some time to come. Uh, this is our tenth year, I think, of autumn lectures, uh, and uh, Professor McKay has been to many of them. And uh, once again, thank you very much indeed for coming tonight, and uh, we've greatly benefited from your thoughts. I'm sure we all agree with that.